So I hope you're here today. And that story doesn't just tell you about a story of great woe. And I sincerely mean this. I've known Peter for over 25 years now. If he never told me this, I would never have suspected it about him. I would not have walked around going, oh man, that dude must have had a pass because he is messed up. <laughs> I wonder about some other things about him, but uh, <laughs> not that. So please, if you're here today and you, and you need God to be God to you, uh, at the end of the service, I want you to hang on to be able to say, God, I, I need you to do in me what you did in his life. And quite honestly, it's not as though Peter signed on for a relationship with God with this list of, hey, God, can we have a word? I got a list here. Would you mind getting to work on that? Uh, he just got a revelation of God. Really, that's what you need. You need a revelation of God and who he is. God will get about healing those things. He'll come into your life and he'll show you things that you, you didn't know he needed you to go into that closet in your life. Well, he'll find the closet. You just need to be deciding this morning. Do you want God? Do you want God in your life? And at the end of the message, I'll give you an opportunity to respond to that. <clears throat> well, this morning I do want to talk about fathers and fatherhood. It's interesting. I saw a news story just a few days ago. Maybe it was this week or maybe the end of last week. And some of you may have watched this. It was on the local news. It was relevant to all the crime that's going on in our city. And there was a gathering of law enforcement officials. I believe the Jefferson Parish Sheriff was there. The Superintendent and Chief of Police of New Orleans was there. And one of them is speaking. I don't remember which one it was, but they're at the microphone. And they begin to explain the issues that are affecting this criminal behavior that is in our city and is so prevalent. And the remedy to this situation, this particular law enforcement leader says, lies in the realm of economic development. <clears throat> and then the news broadcast fills us in on the aspects of what was shared at this kind of briefing, what was said. And there was a comparison that was made about the crime rate in New Orleans and the crime rate in Anaheim, California, a city of similar size. And, you know, here there's about a murder almost every day here. I think last year Anaheim had like 17 murders. And the data that got connected was, well, the average income in New Orleans is $37,000, while the average income in Anaheim is between forty-five dollars and $56,000. So, you know, if you can just solve the economic disparity, then you can fix the ills of society. Um, th those folks obviously haven't traveled to other parts of the world where people live in abject poverty and they don't kill one another every day. But, you know, that's kind of like the government and it's kind of like our culture. If you want to fix society, you think for a moment when you watch the news at night and you hear the professionals, what is it that would fix our society? Well, for years, as far back as I can remember, better education would fix our society. Right? And that's why the education system is so important. And every president runs on something about education and no child left behind and an emphasis 
on what education can and will accomplish if we can just get the education system down right. And now, of course, you know, economics is a part of education because if you get a good education, you can get a good job. And then economically, you'll be able to have a good life and then we're going to fix all the crime problems in that regard. Here's what my concern is for us today, because I realize most of us in this room today are seeking to live our life under the banner of the wisdom of God. We're seeking to be the people of God. My concern would be you live in a culture that keeps telling you the thing to fix about life is over here. It's, it's over here. It's this issue over here. It's these issues in people's lives over here. You know, eventually what you'll do, because if this is where God says truth is, eventually what you'll do when you listen to the news over and over and over again, and you, you get around a family meeting, and you have, I don't know how many of y'all have family meetings that got a little bit of a heat to them, you know, you know, all your family, maybe you're getting together today with family, extended family, and, and politics is going to come up, and societal issues are going to come up, and opinions are going to be weighed, and people are going to feel strongly about them. You hear the issue, the solution is over here, it's over here, it's over here. Eventually, even if you're a Christian, believing that the solution is right here, you begin to skew your posture at least a little, and maybe for some, a lot, to where you begin to not feel like, well, this really has the solution for us. I mean, yeah, now I know it does. I'm somewhere in between here. I mean, maybe we don't come out and say this stuff. But the edges of the radical word here gets shaved off constantly as the world confidently stands and tells us. You know, the problem here is economic development. Okay, well, I'm going to hang my hat on what the Bible says. I'm going to hang my hat on the reason why I titled the message today is One Nation... Underfathered. One nation underfathered. We live in a nation that doesn't have enough influence from fathers taking place in it. Now, I'm not saying that economics aren't an issue. I'm not saying that there aren't, there aren't a host of problems in a number of areas. But I, if I'm going to get the most bang for my buck, if I want to aim at one thing that would fix the most things, I'm going to aim at this subject today. If you could fix fatherhood, you would go a long way to fix a lot of things. Now, fatherhood, I mean, if I were to begin with a question of, well, what is a father? You know, a few years ago, that was a no-brainer question. You wouldn't begin a message trying to clarify, what is a father? Uh, today, that might be a good starting place. I mean, today, with the number of children that are born out of wedlock, out of a father who first realizes, before I bring children into the world, I'm going to join myself to one other person and make a commitment in my life to live toward that person for the rest of my life. And then into that setting, I'll bring children. And therefore, I will be a father. Well, you know, years ago, it used to be a third of all children were born out of wedlock. It's much more than that. I'm not current on those latest stats, but it's been approaching the 50% level. So you, you obviously have an issue here where some people don't feel like any of those parameters need to be in place in order to be a father. And now, common news headlines on a constant basis. I mean, my goodness, I can't watch the news at all or read the newspaper at all without same-sex marriages being somewhere in the headlines. Well, what does that do for fathers? Well, you either get two of them or you get zero. So apparently our definition for a father is changing. 
Listen, there is the most, I, I think this is true, the most radical changes are being undergone right now in defining the family that have happened in any of our lifetimes. By far. Perhaps even historically. There's been a lot of social experiments, but ain't nothing like what we're here. I mean, ten, just ten years ago, it would have been like you were, you were hearing news broadcasters curse on TV to have them discuss the commonness and the acceptableness of same-sex marriages. You know how far we have come in just ten years? You know, to have some beauty pageant woman stand up and make a statement and make the headlines because she disagrees with a position. Give me a break. That's news? Well, yeah, today, that's news. I mean, the mere fact that I'm treating that like that's weird, for some of you right now, you're having a hard time hearing me say that. Listen, 10, 15 years ago, you bring that subject up. <laughs> I'm not the weird one. You are. What you want to talk about? You think, what? It wasn't that long ago that that was weird. And now it's weird if you don't agree with it. We are in a climate of social change that is unparalleled. It is eroding and destroying a definition of fatherhood that has any meaning to it. Here's some social related authors. David Popino, in his book, Life Without Father, says this. The decline of fatherhood is one of the most basic, unexpected, and extraordinary trends of our time. Now, this is, fellow is not a believer. This is just a social scientist. No one predicted this trend. Few researchers or government agencies have monitored it. And it is not widely discussed even today. But the decline of fatherhood is a major force behind many of the most disturbing problems that plague American society. Crime. Premature sexuality and out-of-wedlock births to teenagers. Deteriorating educational achievement. Depression. Substance abuse and alienation among adolescents. And the growing number of women and children in poverty. Even as this calamity unfolds, our cultural view of fatherhood itself is changing. Few people doubt the fundamental importance of mothers. But fathers? More and more, the question of whether fathers are really necessary is being raised. Many would answer no, or maybe not. And to the degree that fathers are still thought necessary, fatherhood is said by many to be merely a social role that others can play. Mothers? Partners, stepfathers, uncles and aunts, grandparents. Perhaps the script can even be rewritten and the role changed or dropped. This is just a guy who's watching society and making some very obvious observations. I mean, when you watch the news and the debates that's happening over social issues like this, no one's standing and raising an objection over the role of a father. Have you heard anybody do that? Have you heard anybody raise a concern that, whoa, whoa, time out. What is this going to do for the role of a father? Now, there's still some discussion from mothers taking place, but almost silence on the issue of fathers. Well, what kind of fruit is this getting us? Well, the National Fatherhood Initiative, they report some stats. They say, according to a U.S. Census Bureau report, over 25 million children live apart from their biological fathers. That is one out of every three children in America. Nearly two in three African-American children live in father-absent homes. Nearly four in ten Hispanic children. And nearly three in ten 
white children live in father-absent homes. And before we cozy up to the idea that fathers really might not be necessary, we might want to take a very careful look on what kind of fruit gets created in our society, in our children, in the future of our society, when fathers and their influence are diminished. Right? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on here. You do a little research on this. I think I put in your outline the $1 billion man. It should say the $100 billion man. This is a report uh, put out by two professors, one of them from the University of Virginia, the other one from DePaul University. And it analyzes the amount of money that it is costing the U.S. government to step in where fathers have stepped out annually. And they actually are honest in saying there's a lot of cost that we don't even begin to know how to trace. But this is what we can get our hands on. Annually, the $100 billion cost that government has to play in order to fix or try to fix issues that have been created. Well, what kind of issues get created here? Well, look at these statistics from Steve Farrar in his book Anchorman. He says 85% of all children who exhibit behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. 85% of all youths sitting in prisons grew up in fatherless homes. 80% of rapists come from fatherless homes. Right, so if I'm going to hang my hat anywhere, it's not going to be on education and it's not going to be on economic development. It's going to be in the fact that we live in one nation that is being severely under-fathered. And the fruit is popping up in our lives. Now, my intention this morning, however, is, is not for us to overanalyze those fathers over there. You know, those fathers. Right? Uh, my intention for us is to analyze how it is that when I live in a culture that's saying this is the issue, this is the issue, this is, this is what you do, this is the de-emphasizing that's taking place to fathers, in spite of what the Word of God says, I live in this world. And, and the effect of pulling my convictions and minimizing the importance that I place upon my role as a father is happening every day because of the world in which I live. And so I begin to not feature the importance of fatherhood in my own life. I begin to diminish the impact of me fumbling and dropping the ball in this category. Now, listen, the church with the truth of God is the only hope for society. It is the only hope. So there needs to be fathers who actually live a pattern and influence children and produce fruit that has a different set of statistics associated with it so that somebody can sit up and say, you know what, there's a group of people on this planet who don't look like these stats. What are they doing? Well, the church needs to be providing the example. And so therefore, fathers... We need to be living our lives to answer the call of being fathers so that we might be salt and light in the earth in a world that desperately needs some upgrading in the realm of being a father. Now, I do want to say this, that as I tamper in this, this topic today, um, 
My, my role is to exhort fathers today. That, that's what I'm intending to do. I'm here today seeking to exhort fathers. Now, if you don't know the definition for the word exhort, to exhort means to urge. It means to press. It means to push. And it means to encourage. Now, you pick the word you like the most, but I'm probably going to do all four of those to you today. Now, I would want you to be aware that, that as I handle a subject like this, uh, this subject finds its way into my life and advertises for me my own sense of failure. Right, so I've got lots of opportunities to fail in this category. And, and I have many places where I can point to that's deficient, that's being done wrong, you better fix that. So I, I've got issues in this category. This, this would be uh, one of those times, and, and I've just had to get used to living, living the Christian life and preaching about it as well. Uh, I'm not here to preach the Keith life. If I were, you'd get some severely downgraded messages on being nominal at many things. But I'm here to preach the Word of God. And, but I'm not here to stand before you and act as though what I preach from the Word is completely embodied by me. It's not. Uh, I'm, I'm in the crosshairs of these subjects. I've grown to not want to speak on certain subjects. But I'm a pastor and I have to. Uh, I'd love to be up here today telling you how to be a victorious woman walking through menopause. <laughs> and I can, I can be full of convictions. And I can thunder. Right? And don't have to worry about how to put any oven on. <laughs> uh, that's not the case this morning, okay? Uh, I have to put this stuff on. But, but let me also say this, as, as one who not only, you know, if I sit down and read a book, if I listen to another pastor preach, you know, I, I'm, I'm, if I'm studying for a message, I'm looking to receive as well. So I find myself often in the crosshairs of a message. Now, let me tell you, quite honestly, I don't want to go to a church or be a part of a church where I'm never in the crosshairs. Where all I'm doing every week is being stroked and encouraged and that wasn't encouraging. Uh, you know, sometimes encouragement starts with, you better get your butt moving, boy. Did your father ever tell you that? That was him encouraging you. That's what he was doing. <laughs> Make sure my kids know that's encouragement when I say that, guys. It's the first step towards movement, right? Now, sometimes I need to know that I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this right. You know, the Bible doesn't apologize for the fact that it corrects us. We live in a fallen world. I'm a sinner. I'm quite capable of being very selfish. Some of the greatest heroes in the Bible needed to be corrected. Right? So if I come to church thinking, well, you know, sometimes I just feel like it's so heavy. Well, because you're standing in the wrong spot. What can I tell you? Get up and move to a better place. Don't stand there and get in. I just feel like I'm being corrected. Well, change. I don't want to tell you. Change. Don't keep doing that. But, but want to be corrected. Want to identify that I fall short. Right? This is, the grace of God should make you safe to be able to be corrected. <laughs> my... my, my my boys play, you know, some of the video game things. And there's apparently there's a way that you can set a couple of these games that they play. They've come up with these codes. You can find these secret codes that sort of reprogram the game. And you can play on invincible mode. Right? 
So whether, you know, whether you're sword fighting or shooting a gun, you never run out of ammo. There's nothing the enemy ever does to you that smashes you. You just bounce back. And you go all the way through the game from level to level to level. And you get to the end and you've mastered the whole game. And sometimes, Dad, you want to play? Let's play on invincible mode. I never want to play on invincible mode. I constantly tell them, no, it's meaningless. It's a meaningless game. You get to the end and you won, so what? You couldn't lose. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I... I want my head coming off. If the sword takes my head off, it takes my head off. And I'm just going to have to figure out how next time to duck. You know, it's a learning experience. But, you know, one of the things that, that wanting to live in the invincible church where we're all on invincible mode and no one ever gets corrected about anything is you also never get to learn about the grace of God. You think you do, but you actually don't. It's not until, man, I love that. And this, do you know how hard it was for me not to want to preach about this today? <laughs> this was very hard to resist. Uh, but there is a picture of the grace of God here that only makes sense when you hang it on the backdrop of our failures. See, if you're nice and I'm nice and we all get along, we're all sweet, and then God gets involved, <laughs> big deal. What is amazing about grace is that God gets involved with me knowing what I know about me. And that God tomorrow will be as faithful to me and as for me in spite of the fact that, boy, did I screw up yesterday. And God is still going to come into my life with a flood of his grace in my life. That makes me scratch my head and back up and go, wow, God, who are you that you are that way? Now, if I think I'm nice because I go to church every week and I get told I'm nice and I'm never uncomfortable about who I am and God comes alongside of me, I'm just telling you, you don't know anything about the grace of God. You want to be amazed by grace? Take a good look at yourself in the mirror and then watch how God treats you. That's amazing grace. So fathers, you may be a little uncomfortable today, but it's a good thing. So what's a father to do? Fathers, what are we to do? Now, I can't do a father seminar this morning. There's not nearly enough time. So all I want to do, I really just want to set kind of one GPS heading for us. Right? I'm not going to go through the details of all that we do along the way to get there. But if you're a father, with all the varieties of fathers that we have and all the different ages and types of children and roles and activities that we play, all of us should have one GPS heading that we all type in and we say, ultimately, that's where I'm headed. This is my ambition for my influence in my children's lives. So I just want to cover that with us today and throw in a little color along the way here. Turn to Psalm 78 with me. Psalm 78. Psalm 78, we'll read the introduction. This is a lengthy song, psalm, and we're just going to look at the introductory elements of it, as it before it gets into detail. Verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things... That we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. 
he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is an interesting passage. It starts off almost almost with a herald-type proclamation, kind of a hear ye, hear ye. It's it's gathering a large group of people. It's not just written to a a, a unique few. It's, It's touching on society here. And the psalmist is bringing a, you need to hear, listen up, this is important, kind of a pronouncement is being made. And the focal point is the role that fathers play in this. It's what fathers were to have been doing and are to do so that something else can be accomplished. Now, it's the ultimate aim that something else get accomplished, but there's means to God accomplishing this. And the feature of those means is in the role of fathers. Now, if you look in verse 8, there's a bit of a contrast here. The backdrop for the need for what just preceded this to be said is found in verse 8. Why are we having to talk about this in this psalm? Well, verse 8 says, because there is a generation, it says that those who are coming after this generation, let's hope they're not going to be like them. There's a current situation that let's hope the generation that's coming next isn't going to repeat that and isn't going to continue it. That they should not be like their fathers. This is, this is a psalm of reformation. This is a psalm of let's fix something. Something's broke. The generation doesn't work. Society doesn't work. Let's fix it. And then there's some, some instruction on how we go about fixing it. Let me just make an obvious point here, but, but not obvious today. It almost sounds today, when I hear in the way in which people talk about societal issues, that it's become wrong to accuse society of being wrong. You notice that? It's almost like wherever society wants to go next, it should be allowed to go there. And if you stand in the way and say it's wrong, well, then you're the one who's intolerant and a problem. I had to exchange some issues here with our congresspeople about hate crimes that are trying to be legislated. Those hate crimes are going to be a real problem, a real problem, because they're not trying to seek to limit people from actually committing crimes. They're actually trying to stop people from thinking a certain way that lead to crimes. Well, uh, these issues that, that are here, this issue highlighted, there is a generational dysfunction taking place in this passage. And somebody needs to stand up and say... Let's not keep doing this. Whoa, whoa, time out. Something is wrong with the way we're doing stuff here. We need to rethink this and go back to doing it a different way. Listen, church, that's never wrong for the church to do. And don't let society tell you that you're intolerant and you're unloving. The the statistics I just went through, that's the most unloving set of statistics I've ever heard in my life. You think Peter's story was a loving story? 
You want to let people do fatherhood however they want? It's just how they want. They want to, have, they want to father children and, and not be fathers to them. Well, that's what they want. You know, and women want to have children out of wedlock. Well, that's what they want. We want to have same-sex marriages. They can't create a child, so we just get the child from somewhere else and import the child in that study. That's what people want. And who are you to tell them you don't want that? Oh, uh, well, first of all, I'm one of the guys paying $100 billion a year. Okay? I'm the guy footing the tab for your goofy ideas. So listen, I, I know I, I'm not trying to flip you out on this, but... But we, we live in a world that, that has idea after idea that doesn't work. It breaks people. It hurts people. It, it harms the very people who are fighting for them. And, and don't feel like you can't stand up and say, you know, can I just say this humbly and nicely? That's a bad idea. And statistically, fruitfully, can't you see that it's a bad idea? It's not because of economic development. There are other issues that have caused our society to come apart. Well, this, this is a passage trying to adjust that for these folks. Now, what's the cause in this passage for generational dysfunction? Look at, look at the translations of this verse in two different places. The New International Version translates this passage. A stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. The Amplified Bible says a generation that set not their hearts aright, nor prepared their hearts to know God and whose spirits were not steadfast and faithful to God. So what led to this dysfunction, this generational dysfunction was people's hearts were wrong toward God. That's what leads wherever it is that we're going. That's the epicenter. When your heart gets wrong towards God and who God's going to be and how you're going to relate to him and how you're going to let him relate to you. When your heart gets wrong, you start down this path of dysfunction as a people. And, and that's what we have. Now, listen, hearts, hearts, not externals, hearts that are not right include what some folks would, would label uh, the liberal unrighteous. Whatever that means to you, the liberal unrighteous who are fostering and creating laws and patterns of living and seeking to normalize those things. So hearts that are wrong would include them. Hearts that are wrong would include the conservative unrighteous. Because I'm talking about hearts that are wrong. I'm not talking about policies and ideas. I'm talking about hearts in people. Right? I mean, does... You know, if you didn't, there's a little undercurrent storyline in some of these stories, right? While we're applauding this woman from California who stood up at the pageant and made this statement about how she does not agree, that's not how she was raised, to believe in same-sex marriages. And she took this great position and she came under fire and lost her beauty pageant crown and all the pain and suffering that must go with that. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, I had no intention of going there, but she'll recover, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> so anyway, here she's she's making these statements publicly and she talks about her faith and, and God. And, you know, and if you're just not paying attention, you think, oh, isn't that great? 
But I'm just curious to know where was her heart when she was taking nude topless photographs that are now being used against her? Oh, but she's got the right position on the right political view. Hey, I'm not so interested. None of us should be so interested in having the right political view. God's after the hearts of people. The God of this Bible is a God who comes in and wrecks your life. And comes in and consumes everything about who you are. He doesn't just give you a political platform. I mean, we've got politics. How many more Republican congressmen are going to make the news headlines with all their right policies, but they're having affairs on their wines and sleeping with prostitutes? Listen, this is, you know, God's after the hearts of people. This is a heart problem. Now, listen, it's not just a politically wrong heart problem. It's a religious heart problem as well. Because you can be real religious and your heart be totally wrong. That's what these people were. They were a religious society. They knew they were supposed to be living a certain way and teaching their kids a certain thing. But yet this is having to be said and reformation is needing to come to a religious bunch of people. So we can't sit here today and say, yeah, preach it, brother. It's about those folks over there. Yeah, yeah, those political people, the liberals. Uh, listen, this is about the heart. You can be sitting in this building today, going through the motions, and have some real heart issues that need to be adjusted. Now, when God decides, I'm going to reform society, where does he start? And it's interesting in this passage, there's some people playing a key role. Right? If you look in, put in your outline there, Luke chapter 1, verse 16. Listen to what God was doing. This is when Jesus is making... His appearance in the form of a man and the redemptive move of God in sending the Messiah is breaking into the realm of men's lives. God is about to move and he says this in verse 16 of Luke 1. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, speaking of John the Baptist, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The same problem trying to get fixed in Psalm 78 that features fathers is here again present. When God begins to move, what he does is he grabs a means of moving and who he grabs his fathers and he turns the hearts of the fathers back to their children where their children become a priority to them and a place of importance in how they live their life toward their children. Now, how do you go about fixing society? Well, one, agree on what fixed looks like. What does it look like to be fixed? And second, employ the fathers to fulfill their calling. Just walk through these two points for a moment. One, what does it mean for humanity to be fixed? Right, I don't know if you, you are. I've told you guys before. I have to. I have to be the fix-it guy around my house. Um, when something breaks and you fix it, you you return it to working order. That's what you do. You don't reinvent it. You don't break it twice and make it do something. Well, maybe you do. But if you're really trying to fix it, you figure out how is this thing originally supposed to work. Let me restore it to that. All right, so if you're going to fix humanity, you just can't volunteer and say, hey, I'm up on that. I want to fix humanity. Well, if you don't know what the original order of man was supposed to be, you really can't fix humanity. Because fixing something means returning it to its original design. 
This thought from John Piper. He says, people who do not orient their lives on the testimony of God in Scripture cannot know what is good for them or for their children. That's a big statement. I don't know. Maybe you don't agree with that. Right? It all depends on how you define good. What is good? So you have to have some kind of a scale upon which to measure things now. If you're going to call something good, you need a reference point, don't you? Right? How many of you always say murdering someone is good? Raise your hands. You say murdering someone is good. How many of you always say murdering someone is good if the guy just broke into your house and he's got a gun and he's about to shoot your wife? Let me see your hands. Okay. It just depends on, on how you measure good, doesn't it? So society makes up its own rules and creates an idea called good. Well, God's already been there. God's already defined what is good. And it is oriented around what God says. So if you don't know what God originally had in mind when he created you, you you can't possibly guide your children. Because you can't really know what's good unless you know the God who designed life and what he had in mind. Piper says that. They may have strong opinions about what is right or helpful, but those opinions will be based on what feels good or on some cultural pressure or on some human tradition or authority less than God. Well, to be fixed, look in this passage here in Psalm 78. Verse 5 tells us God did something. Not even this is even after creation, which we get some insight from God and what he had in mind. But then in verse five, it says God established a testimony in Jacob in the people of God. God put a testimony in them to tell a story. He established a testimony in Jacob and he appointed a law in Israel. This this is why we have a record of all this stuff, because there's a storyline with it that tells us about God. and It tells us about us and it tells us about our need. And so this, this is why this is such a great presentation, because God intended this story to inform us about what we really, really need. And he, as he commanded our fathers to teach this to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, that the next generation, I'm sorry, did I skip that? Yes. So that... They should set their hope in God. Why does all this exist? Why is there truth in Scripture? Why did God create a testimony? Why is there anything to teach? Why is there anyone to teach? Why does someone play the role of being a teacher? Why are there fathers in a position to influence? Here's the goal. Here's your GPS heading. So that our children might set their hope in God. That is such a helpful phrase. It is so rich because it really identifies something about us much more than, you know, the goal. Fathers, the goal is not to get your children to come to church. The goal is not just to get your children to be upstanding citizens in in America, stay out of jail, get a good education. That's not the goal. The goal as a father is for your children to set their hope in God. See, whatever I set my hope in says a lot about me. When you bump into me, you're you're bumping into that issue. You're bumping into the mood that I'm in because you're bumping into that issue. What I set my hope in has to do with my passions, what I really go after, what I value, what I call my purpose statement, the reason why I'm here, who I think I am. 
all the planning that's going on, all the scheming going on in terms of how I'm going to use my week, how I'm going to use my money, how I'm going to use my time, is everything about where I have set my hope. So the most important question for any one of us at any moment, most important question is what are you setting your hope in? Right now, last week, over the course of the last two years of your life, what are you setting your hope in? Now, if you try to answer that right now, you're in church, right? You're in church. So you get to give a church answer. Yeah, you know, well, I don't know, Martha, I think it's God. I'd say God. <laughs> really? Is that what you looked like last week? When something didn't go a certain way in a certain category? Did it touch your hope? Did you get so animated and freaked out because your hope was untouched? Because your hope got a dark cloud over it. And all of a sudden now, that's no longer going to be possible for me. And you became a different person. Right? And you think through. I'll put some helpful discerning questions in your outline. It'll be helpful for you to sit down with God and be honest with him. This is how you test for where your hope really is. What do you get anxious about? What aspect of your life do you experience the most fear in? That's going to tell you a little bit about where your roots have been sunk down to find hope. Over what do you become angry? I mean, I mean, really angry. Something that really matters to you. Mulling it over days at a time. Can't shake this thing. Angry. In what area of your life do you battle being discontent? Just really not satisfied with the way things have been going in that category. Who are you jealous of or envious of? Right? Who do you lift your eyes up? You immediately play this comparison thing. You know, well, what, well, why is that? Well, because they're going somewhere that I wish I was farther along going to. Hey, let me ask you this. How many of you guys walk in the building here today and you were most jealous of the most godly people here? You are most jealous of those who are enjoying God the most. That's who you're jealous of. You weren't jealous of anybody in the car they were driving and the attractiveness of somebody else's body, of the amount of money this person has and the ease of their life. Versus their... You weren't jealous of any of those things. You were only jealous about those who are passionately pursuing God. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. See, this stuff gives away. It gives away. We can, we can give the pat Sunday school answer. Oh, my help is in God. Oh, Really? Well, then try to explain to those around you why you've been so difficult to be around for the last week. Because something stepped in and threatened your hope. And you responded poorly, right? But what is the, the calling and responsibility of fathers? Well, this is it. This is what God steps in and says, I want to fix that which needs to be reformed in people. I'm, I'm going to grab a hold of fathers. And what I want fathers to go to work doing in their children's lives is to teach them and lead them to set their hope in God. That's the ambition. Listen, not in education. Can I say that again? Do not teach your children to set their hope in education. Well, who would do that? Well, every time you overlook the fact that your kid is in the spiritual ditch... And the only questions you seem to want to ask him about are his grades. 
You don't sit down and have a serious discussion with your children about their lack of affection for God. You want to talk to them when they fall below a C or they get a D or you want to shut off their oxygen because they got an F. (laughs) When you got a when you're freaked out because you can't get them into the right school in order to get them into the next right school so that they can go to the right college. When that's what you are sending a message to them about, you are teaching them. To set their hope in education. And by sheer silence and neglect about how unanimated you are in other categories, you by default teach them what the world's already teaching them. Education is the most important thing about their life. Fathers, don't do that. It's a huge mistake. We teach them to set their hope in God, not in their athletic abilities. Not in their musical talents, not in their physical attractiveness. Now, this is very tempting and very difficult because you're going to try as a parent to relate to your children. And, and that can be a challenge. So you want to find something about them that stands out, that you can make a big deal over, that you can applaud. And what you're going to find is probably one of those things. They're either going to have athletic abilities, they're going to have musical abilities, or they're just pretty. And so the next thing you know... You just start making a deal about that. You know, when you get animated, that's what you get animated about. You know, it's like, man, they played a great game. That's what you get animated about. They don't hear animation from you in other categories. They get a musical talent. Oh, oh, let's assemble everybody in the universe to come here. Oh, I mean, eventually. And all you ever say is how beautiful you're the prettiest. Listen, don't stop doing those things. But do something louder than those things in your child's life. They need to hear that God is the place. You know how many of our kids are growing up putting their hope in those things? I mean, I grew up playing sports, uh, loved to play sports, wished I could have turned pro. <laughs> the reality is, ain't nobody here today turning pro, you know? My kids hate to burst your bubble, but you ain't going to be going pro. Did you see odds? I mean, you're going to get struck by lightning twice in your life before you turn pro. <laughs> so... I just warn you, be careful on your way to the car. I know it's all sunny out there, but it's more likely to happen today than you're turning pro. I know you think you're good, but it's like that's what we are preparing them for. And we teach them to set their hope in that. It's not in money or career or possessions. But if they watch some of us, wouldn't they learn that by default? Because we're all freaked out about what money we don't have or what possessions we can't seem to get or whether our career is going the right way. And by default, we teach them, son, put your hope in this. This is big. Pay attention to that. It's not in having friends or getting married or being socially significant. That's not what their hope is in. Vody Bauckham says, Christianity has become so marginal in our culture that even those who claim allegiance to Christ have very little to show for it in terms of time and commitment. It all comes down to a simple question. Why are we here? Does our family exist to prepare children for the major leagues? (laughs) If so, then baseball will be the center of our family's universe and everything will bow to the whims and wishes of the baseball god. Does our family exist to produce socialites? Well, if so, then our family must revolve around the social calendars of our overloaded teenagers and their hectic schedules. But that's not where they're to be taught to put their hope, fathers. We want to be learning how to teach our children to put their hope in God. Let me just say this. None of those things are wrong. I I put that in your outline. I believe I underlined it. 
Right? Don't anybody go cosmic on me. Don't accuse me of being a legalist. Don't act as though, boy, his kids must have a miserable existence with him. <laughs> they could break the time record and he wouldn't say anything. No, that's not true. I mean, I get jazzed. I, I, I get loud about success and categories that they experience. We spend a lot of time playing basketball, the only true great sport that anyone should play. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm all for those things. But here's the problem, because in Psalm 78, what's interesting here is it opens up with this concern. You know, listen up. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old things, things we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them. We will not hide them. You know how you hide stuff? You just cover it with other stuff. It doesn't mean it's not there. It's just covered over. And so if I'm much more loud about these things than I am about putting my hope in God, well, then I'm hiding that from my children. The way in which I animate is obscuring what really matters. Fathers, fathers, make more noise about the glory of God and the worthiness of pursuing that and the reward of pursuing it in our lives than anything else you want to talk about with your kids. All right, well, this morning, I want to close by... Matt, you can go ahead and come. By praying for fathers, and then we're going to have a little gift for you at the very end, and I'll explain that in just a moment. Let me ask all of us to stand together. Wants to get before the Lord, so if you could just maybe just make yourself a little private space in your own hearts, be able to benefit from whatever it is that God wants to communicate to you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for a bunch of thoughts, but but it may not be that all of these thoughts are for you as an individual. What's God want to say to you this morning? In particular, fathers that are here this morning, but some of this isn't limited just to you. But I do want to speak to the fathers in particular. Fathers, have you set your hope in God? You can't teach somebody else to do what you haven't done. Have you set your hope in God? Is your heart right toward God? Is it loyal to God? Is it faithful to God? Are you passionate about God? Do you run hard in your life after God? And listen, there's some here this morning, and you just listen for God in this moment. He, only He can tell you where you're at. I can't tell you. But there would be some here this morning who perhaps... Your heart is not right toward God. You might be politically correct as far as you're concerned. And you might even be religious. But is your heart right toward God? Is God your all? Does He have your whole life? Can God this morning direct you to do anything He wants you to do in whatever category of your life? Could God tell you to go approach one of your children who has greatly offended you and you haven't talked to him in quite a while? 
God tell you to restore some broken aspect of your relationship? Could God tell you this morning to go humble yourself in your home and fix some things that you know you've been handling wrong? See, because if God can't tell you to do any of those things, then you might be religious, but your heart is not right toward God. Your heart is stubborn. Listen, I lived a few years of my life stubbornly religious. I had some space for God. He just needed to stay within the fence that I'd created for him. And then I realized, kind of like what Peter described about his own life, then I realized that's not how you relate to God. As a matter of fact, if that is how you're relating to God, you really don't have a relationship with God. The God of the universe refuses to live on a leash. He will either be God or he will not be in your life. That's what the Bible says. But this morning, I want to appeal to fathers who, who maybe for you, the greatest thing you're going to take from this service is what you heard Peter talk about. It's the day he discovered God as his father. The day he took his life with all the brokenness that was in it, all the dysfunction, all the wounds, all the past memories, and he just took the whole thing without knowing exactly what God would do with all those areas. But he just took the whole thing and he just said, God, here, here, God, you have this. And from that moment on, God began to work in his life. Listen, as Peter said, he'd been to church. He'd been around religion. I'm not talking about being religious here today. I'm talking about your heart toward God. If you're here today and, and you know your heart's really not given over to God, you can do that. You can do it right now. You don't need some special permit. I don't need to come touch you. I don't even need to know who you are. God knows who you are. Right now, you can turn to God right now. Right now in this place. You say, God, I want to give my life to you. I want you to do in my life what that man described having been done in his life. God, I need you to put my life back together. Now, if you're going to do that, you're going to need to turn away from living your own life your own way and turn to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus Christ, Forgive me of my sins. Remove the barrier that they've created in my life and come, come live in me. Come take over my life. I trust you and I yield my life to you. And I will, I will follow you from this day forward as best I understand how to do that. Lead me from now on. My life is yours. To stand before God, if you did that this morning and you want to do that right now, do it. It makes your heart right with God. It begins this work that God is going to, he's going to do some incredible things in days ahead. For the rest of us who are here, particularly fathers, living in a world that has de-emphasized our role, my question to you is, are you under-fathering your children? Are you emphasizing the wrong things? Are you just not available? Are you not growing in your role? Have you de-emphasized the importance of the role you play in depositing into their life a desire to set their hope in God? You can't, do, you can't put a gun to their head and make them do that. Your life has to compel them to do that. Your prayers for them must alter their hearts to want to do that. Now, I wonder how many fathers we have here today. And I'm, I'm putting you in the crosshairs, but you're just getting in line behind me, okay? 
who need to wrestle through, how is it that I am under-fathering my children? I believe there's grace here present today for fathers by the Holy Spirit to help you in your role as a father. So I want to ask all the fathers to remain standing. I'd like everybody else to sit down. I want all the fathers to remain standing. And I want all of us this morning to, to pray for those that are standing here right now. Maybe your father who's standing nearby. Or it may just be someone that you know in the church who's standing here. But I want you to join with me in praying for these fathers. This is the greatest source of hope for this society that we live in. Standing right here in our midst right now. It's not the president. It's it's not some government official. It's you and me. The greatest, most influential source of hope to see a generation change. And more importantly than that, it's just who God's called us to be. To answer the call to be fathers. Let's bow our heads. Let's ask God for grace and help. Father, I thank you for these men. I thank you because if they are standing, it's because you have made them fathers. You have made them fathers. You have assigned children to their lives. Lord, that is both a source of joy and a source of sobriety for each of us. For we will both enjoy the gifts of children you've given us in our lives, and we will also render an account for their lives and the influence that we had on them. But today is a great moment for some of us to hear you say, from the posture of being in the crosshairs, hey boy, you better get moving. You're running out of years. Lord, not only do we need correction, but we need help. For there would be nothing more difficult for these men, oh God, than to feel as though we have neglected something that mattered so much to us. So Lord, thank you for being a redeeming God. Thank you for grace that makes its great, loud appearance against the backdrop of our failures. Lord, thank you that Our hope is in you, O Lord, to be to our children and in their lives what we have perhaps poorly helped to foster. God, today, today, Lord, today we come asking for fresh grace in our lives. God, today we ask that no more days would be wasted. God, today we ask for radical transformation in our own lives so that we might answer the call that you have given to us. God, today we ask for new days ahead. God, today we acknowledge the presence of your Spirit in our lives to work in us, 
to motivate us, to give us insight and wisdom for our children, to change us so that we can serve it up to them in a way that is winsome and attractive and truly helpful. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for grace today, Lord. Thank you that not a man in this building needed to be perfect up to this moment. Because God is going to lavish His kindness upon our lives. And He does so to those who don't deserve it. God, thank you. God, thank you that in the future of me being a father, I have hope, not because I determined to be something, but because you have already decided you would be something in my life. You would be my father. And you would never stop being good to me. And you would never cease to work in my life so that I might have the joy of being a father to my children. So God, today, the reason why I am eager to have my children put their hope in you is because every day for me has been a day where there is hope because my hope is in you, oh God. It's in you today. It's in you for the future. God, may each of us as men here today who are fathers place our hope firmly in you and lead our children to do likewise. I want us to to give you guys a little gift today. So if I could have the gift givers show up. You guys who are fathers, remain standing for a moment. Well, here's a little different gift for you than what we've given to fathers in the past. We're going to give you a Starbucks gift card. Now, there is one stipulation if you receive this gift card. The stipulation is, this is us treating you to Starbucks. The stipulation is that you will take your children with you. One at a time, a couple of them. And you will sit down with them and you will open your life to them and give them the opportunity to interact with your life. Now, if you don't have children that are age appropriate uh, to do this, um, I don't know, 